Uh, it's great to be with you guys this morning. Like Steve said, my name's Hunter. Um, a ministry resident here. I'm just excited to open God's word with you this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 14, if you'll turn with me there. And while you're turning, I'll go ahead and, and pray for our time together in the word. God, thank you so much for, God, all that you're doing in Grace Church. Um, thank you for um, just the blessings of this faith family that we've heard about already this morning, that you've just poured out your grace and blessing and given us opportunities to be a part of what you're doing here in Abu Dhabi. And God, just as we open your word, would you focus our hearts on you, God? Um, would you help us to see our sin? Would you help us to see your grace? And would you help us uh, worship you uh, more and more in our hearts, God? So we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all of us have heart problems, right? We're, we're all in a daily battle against idols in our hearts. And oftentimes our actions reveal some key things about what's in, inside of our hearts, what we believe, and how we go about our daily lives can reveal those things, those sins in our hearts. And we're going to see that in the passage today in Luke 14. Um, like the Pharisees that we'll see far too often, we want to focus on the outward things that we do. Um, for example, we'll say, oh, I just need to stop doing this. Or I just need to start doing this. And those aren't always bad things to say, right? But often we're scared to kind of go deep and deal with what's behind those actions. And many times the problem's actually deeper than just what we're doing on the outside. And so we'll see that in Luke 14, where Jesus has a meal with the Pharisees and he reveals some of their heart problems. And so our hope today is that some of those heart problems that are inside of us will be exposed as well. And we'll see the sins. Because I think one of the temptations that we can have as we uh, read a passage like the one today is to put ourselves up against those that Jesus is teaching to. We say like, oh, we're not that bad. Or I'm glad I'm not like these Pharisees. You know, I wouldn't act like that. Um, and in the end, we end up taking the same posture as the Pharisees do, right? And so, yeah, we, we need to read it today with humility. Um, read this text with humility and humble ourselves. Consider that Jesus may be speaking to us in the condition of our hearts. I know this passage has humbled me and spoke to my heart this week. And so here's where we're going. We'll see four heart problems that most of us deal with in this passage and four remedies to these heart problems. And Pastor Steve really helped me see a couple of these heart problems. So I'm thankful for his help with that. But I think all of us really deal with some of these heart issues um, in one way or another. So let's look at uh, Luke 14, starting with the first six verses. I'll start reading in verse one. One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So this is the setting for the rest of our passage today, that Jesus is at a meal at the ruler of uh, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And these, these people that are present, they're watching him carefully. So there's already kind of some tension in the room from the beginning. And um, they're watching him carefully. And there's more than one way to really watch someone carefully, right? You can watch someone carefully that you respect, like 
taking notes, like, oh, what are they doing? Like, how can I kind of do what they're doing? Or you can watch someone carefully in a negative way, right? Kind of in order to trap them or to see them fail. Now, none of us do that, right? We, we would never do that. But you can imagine, say you have a rival at work or something like that, and you maybe are watching them carefully to see where they're going to mess up and you can get ahead of them. You know, none of us would do anything like that, right? But that's how they're watching him. Um, not the first way, but the second way. And we saw the same thing in the passage in Luke 7 that Josh Wall had preached about a couple of weeks ago. Not a learning posture, but a critical posture of Jesus. So that's the setting at this meal. Let's keep reading in verse 2. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now dropsy, it, it just means edema or swelling. So th- there was a man there that had intense swelling that was probably painful but it was also shameful in the day. Um, they looked at it as like something that was a consequence of your sin. And so there's this, man that, or there's this man there that everyone is looking at as a sinner and he has this painful swelling. Verse three says, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Notice that Luke says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Now, he doesn't say what Jesus was responding to. He doesn't tell us, but Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So maybe he hears what the people are thinking. He knows what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't heal this guy because it's the Sabbath. Or maybe someone made a a smart comment about, um, oh, last time Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but it's the Sabbath. Let's see what he's going to do. And so he responds to them. But what's left unsaid here is that they do not approve. They would not approve of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And we know this because the Pharisees had kind of added extra rules to the Sabbath on their own. And then if we look back at Luke 13, um, they've actually already disapproved of Jesus healing on the Sabbath before. So Luke 13, 13 through 16 says, Uh, Jesus was teaching on the Sabbath and there was a woman that was present that had a deformity. And verse 13 says, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. That's the proper response to healing, right? God healing someone is glorifying God. Let's keep going. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whose Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So Jesus already knows that these Pharisees and the people in the room are disapproving of him and that they aren't going to like him to heal the lady. It's stirred controversy before. And um, they're really trying to trap Jesus to see what he's going to do, which by the way, this is foolish. Jesus is God. You cannot trap God. Um, So what do they do? Back to Luke 14. Or what does Jesus do in Luke 14? Verse four, he says, then 
Luke says, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So he heals again on the Sabbath day, despite knowing what the people in the room might think. He sees a man with dropsy. He has compassion and mercy on him and heals him. And then he asks them this question about if they would rescue their son or an ox that's fallen into a well. And Jesus knows that they would. They would not leave their son to die or even suffer till the next day that wasn't the Sabbath, right? You can't imagine the Pharisees seeing their son falling into a well and then just saying, oh, sorry, Johnny, you're going to have to wait until tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath. No, they would pull him out, right? And they wouldn't even do that to their brother's ox, right? To an animal. They would pull him out on the Sabbath. But they wouldn't have Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And so it's hypocrisy, right? And then they have no reply and their trap for Jesus has not worked, right? They can't answer him because they know they would do that. But really this reveals the first heart problem that I think the Pharisees have. And it's that they're ignoring the truth. They're ignoring the truth in at least two ways here, I think. First, in Deuteronomy 22.4, this is a passage that the Pharisees would have known well. It says, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. That's why Jesus brings up helping your son or an ox fallen in the well. He's wanting them to think back on that verse in the law. And he's saying, you should rescue it. And so the truth is that the law commands to show mercy to your brother or even his animal just as it commands to obey the Sabbath. But the Pharisees are ignoring that truth about the law. And their real motivation for disapproval of Jesus is not the law, as they would want people to think, right? It's something else. And secondly, they're ignoring the truth of who Jesus really is. Back in Luke 6, 5, Jesus has already said he's Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath. He, he's performed miracles, forgiven sins, and shown his authority throughout his ministry. And the Pharisees are still ignoring the truth about him. He's the Messiah and the person that they've been waiting for. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And they're ignoring his authority. And he's right in front of them. It's as if the Pharisees, you know, Jesus is right there with them, God in the flesh, and they're saying, nah, I'd rather just pay attention or just have an argument about the Sabbath. You know, how ridiculous is that? And so the remedy for this problem of ignoring the truth really is embrace the truth. It's simple, but it's crucial, right? And where do we go for the truth about God, about Jesus? We go to the same place the Pharisees should have gone, to the scriptures. Had they embraced Deuteronomy 22, they would have known that they should show mercy to this man who had dropsy. Likewise, we should be reading and understanding the truth of God's word and embracing it. And it should be shaping our lives 
And when we do embrace that truth, um, it keeps us from sin. It keeps us from looking at the man with dropsy and say, no, I'd, I'd rather just make up my own rule about the Sabbath. And so after some drama at the dinner table, Jesus decides to do some more teaching as if that situation hadn't been awkward enough. Um, he's healed a guy, might as well do some teaching as well at the meal. And so let's look at the next parable. There's three more parables. Verse seven says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed that they had chose the places of honor. Now it can be helpful for us to think for a second about places of honor at the dinner table, because maybe where you're from, uh, there is this concept of sitting in a place where you sit at a dinner table makes you more important. Where many of us are from, that's not the case. You're just kind of sit down and eat dinner wherever, um, even at an important banquet. So, um, but in the context of Jesus's day, where you sat at a meal was very important. It showed how important you were. And if you sat right beside the host, that was kind of the place of honor. And so what's happening here is Jesus noticed that everyone, um, as they sit down to eat this meal, everyone's kind of competing to get to the place of honor beside the host. They're like, oh, I'm just going to sneak by this guy while he's talking and, and sit down beside the host. Or Joe got up to go to the restroom. I'm just going to take his spot and pretend like I didn't see him. Um, they're jockeying for the place of honor. And Jesus sees all of the, the honorable places are chosen first. And so what does he say to them in response to this? He says in verse 8, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Jesus explains to the Pharisee that in seeking the place of honor, they're actually gonna be dishonored and shamed and embarrassed because they might be told to go to a less honorable place. So kind of think of the embarrassment you might feel if you go to a meal and you kind of sit down beside the host and um, you're thinking, oh, like I'm the guest of honor. And then in walks someone else into the meal that uh, the person thinks, like the host thinks, oh, this person is a little bit more honorable. And he comes over to you and says, hey, I'm sorry, this is awkward, but can you go sit over there instead? <laughs> He's going to sit in your seat. Like think of the embarrassment and shame in any culture, even if this is not important to your culture, like you're going to feel embarrassed, right? And so this is what Jesus wants them to see and feel as he's tell, telling this parable is that those who seek the places of honor will be humbled. And so let's go on to verse 11, where Jesus explains the parable. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so in these verses, we see the second heart problem of the passage, which is self-exaltation. And exalting, it's, it's kind of a different word that we don't use a lot in English. It means raising or promoting. So we're thinking about raising or promoting ourselves. Uh, 
And the Pharisees were doing this by seeking the places at the table. But remember that Jesus is speaking to the heart here. He's not practically telling us how to sit at a dinner table. And the, um, Steve took us to Luke 18 last week, and it, it uses the same phrase. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it helps us understand this passage because Jesus uses it in reference to salvation, to justification. The man that uh, had recognized his sin and that he was in need of mercy, Jesus says that that man went home justified. So Jesus is telling us here that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and not just embarrassed, but humbled eternally. So James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's a serious thing. God isn't just indifferent to self-exaltation. He opposes it. John Piper says it like this, if you pursue the seats of honor on earth, you will have no seat at all in heaven. And so we may not pursue honor and self-exaltation in how we sit at the dinner table, but we all do it in many other ways daily. We do it on social media. We do it with what we say to others. We do it with how we treat other people. It's a huge temptation for us all, right? Myself included. And it's especially harder today as our world is kind of more connected, even on the internet, and we have more avenues to kind of exalt ourselves, right? And to put ourselves in front of other people and say, look how great I am. And that's even a temptation this morning as you get up to preach God's word, to exalt yourself. And so we're all tempted in so many different ways to do this and it's pride, and it's dangerous, and really it keeps us from seeing Jesus, just like it was keeping the Pharisees from seeing who Jesus was. And the remedy for this is simple as well. It's humility. Look at verse 11. Jesus says it right there. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We must humble ourselves and see that we're sinners in need of grace. I really love this quote by Andrew Murray, who is a South African pastor that wrote on humility in the 1890s. He he says, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. So instead of exalting ourselves, instead of putting ourselves out as honorable, we put God in his proper place. That's humility, dethroning ourselves and enthroning God. And so humility is not self-exalting, but it's realizing that we're sinners in need of Jesus. And he deserves the exaltation, the promoting, the raising up. And in humility, there's no room for self-exaltation because we're exalting Jesus as Lord. And we're acknowledging that we are sinners and that he paid the debt for our sin and that we couldn't pay it on our own. That's humility. And it should kill any self-exaltation that we do. And remember, the stakes are huge here. They're eternal. Which brings us to the next parable. The first one was aimed at the guests. And then this next one is aimed at the person who's hosting the dinner, who invited him. In verse 12, Luke says, He said also to the man who had invited him, 
This is Jesus talking. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your rich relatives or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Here, Jesus is pointing to the third heart problem that we see, and it's chasing earthly rewards. There was a culture here of being repaid. You'd invite someone to your dinner just so that you'd be invited to their next dinner. And it can be this cycle of just hosting dinners so that you're invited to other people's dinners. And of course, if, if, you're, if that's your motivation to chase this reward, you're going to invite the most powerful, the richest, so that you get invited to their dinner and then people see you there, right? This is what they were doing. And it's not biblical hospitality. That's seeking reward from the world. And so Jesus is not saying here, though, don't invite your family members over for dinner. Maybe some people are going to use that as an excuse later. Or rich people for dinner. But he's continued to show what actions are the result of heart problems. And he's focusing on the deeper issue of what people are doing. And we can easily, you know, kind of check off the boxes here like, okay, don't invite rich people to dinner, to dinner or, and then feel like we're justified, right? But then we're missing the issue. This scenario really reminds me of Matthew 6, uh, 19 through 21, where Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves tre- treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, for those that invite the rich and relatives in order to be repaid, they receive their reward. It's here on earth. They reveal where their treasure is. It's here on earth. And so what's Jesus's counter to this heart issue? We see it in verse 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this would defeat the purpose of reward-seeking hospitality, right? Their feast would have no purpose because these people can't repay them. And so they might be thinking as they hear Jesus talking, like, what's the reward in that? Like, why would we do that? What's the point of that? And the key is in verse 14 when Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So that's the third remedy for this heart problem of chasing after earthly rewards, it's having an eternal perspective. We don't chase earthly rewards, but we chase heaven. So we must ask ourselves, how am I seeking rewards now instead of heaven? And in what way is my heart inclined to do things that matter for now instead of for eternity? And we all have different ways that we're doing this, right? Like I I can't see into your heart and know how you might be chasing earthly rewards. These people were doing it with invitation to meals, but we're all doing it in different ways. But if you set your eyes on eternity, if you set your heart on eternity, you'll invest your life on eternal things. Like serving the poor, the crippled, and those that cannot repay you on earth. 
Harun gave us a great way to do that today, right? Um, to bless these brothers that are in a difficult situation. I don't think we can, we can walk past Jesus' emphasis here on the poor and the crippled and those that cannot repay you on earth. And so let's move to the last parable. Look at, look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So someone at the table kind of gives a clever remark about the kingdom of God and himself being blessed. You can almost kind of feel the smugness there. And Jesus responds in verse 16, a man with more teaching, by the way, Jesus just keeps laying it on them at the, at the dinner table. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come now, come for everything is now ready. Now, this is another kind of thing that we need to think about. This is before refrigeration, right? And so if you're going to have a, a great banquet, you need to know how many people are coming and it needs to be pretty precise because you can't just throw the leftovers in the fridge and say, okay, we're going to eat that later, right? And so what they would do in this day is that they would send out two invitations. They would send out the first one to kind of get an RSVP, um, kind of see who's coming. And then they'd send out the second one once everything was really ready uh, already. And it would be kind of expected that if you accepted the first invitation, you should come because we've already prepared all the food. And so in, in verse 17, this announcement is that second invitation. It's telling everyone, everything's ready. You've said you're coming. The food's all prepared. Now come eat. And so in verse 18, he says, they, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. These are lame excuses, right? Not to come to dinner. Uh, one even blames it on his wife, the newly married guy, right? He said, I can't come. I just got married. And Jesus wants us to read these or hear these and say, those are bad excuses, especially in the light of what Jesus is really talking about here, the heavenly and eternal banquet. They're bad excuses. And so verse 21, the servant came and said, the servant came and he reported these things to the master. He told them that the people were making excuses. Then the master of the house became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Why is the master so angry that the people aren't coming to the banquet? They're just rejecting the invitation, right? But it's because they've already said they're coming and he's prepared the meal and the guests are not coming now. And now all this food is gonna go to waste if someone doesn't eat it. So it's urgent that someone comes to the banquet, right? Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. It's urgent. Go get the humble, the people that will come, the poor, the sick. And then the servant says in verse 22, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. 
This banquet hall is huge, apparently. There's still room even after inviting a ton of more people. The, and the master goes on in verse 23, says to the servant, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And so he's saying, go out um, and get everyone. Go even outside the city to the highway. We want this to be a great banquet filled with people and with joy. And in verse 24, Jesus explains the parable again. He says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The none of those men here is those who were invited to the banquet, but have rejected Jesus's invitation. They said they were coming, but then they made excuses not to. And really we see the fourth heart problem here. It's not treasuring the kingdom, not treasuring the banquet. And Jesus shows here that the people have valued other things over this great banquet. They wanted to go look at a field or count their auction, oxen. Those are lame excuses. And they did not value the banquet over these things. And no one that receives the invitation and rejects it will taste of it. And so he's showing the people that are there sitting at dinner with them, the Pharisees and the lawyers and the others that are present, that they're invited to the banquet, yet they're rejecting his invitation. They're invited into the kingdom, yet they're constantly rejecting his invitation. Now, again, having land and oxen and a wife is not a bad thing, right? It's a gift from God. But the true problem that this parable illustrates for us is that some will reject the kingdom for other things, even good things. John Piper commented on this parable saying, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these things replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. And so what's the remedy for our heart problem of not valuing the kingdom of God? It's to run to his banquet with joy. We should be the ones with humility that run to the banquet with joy because we're invited and we don't even deserve a seat at the table. That should be our heart posture. Revelation 19, 9 says of the banquet of God. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Those at the banquet of Jesus are blessed and not just blessed in this life, but blessed eternally. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The banquet that's coming, this eternal banquet, is something better than anything we could ever imagine. And there's no excuse great enough to put off coming to Christ. Nothing better to chase after, nothing of more value. The good things of this earth, like oxen, land, cars, even family, won't last. But the banquet is forever. So I think two applications. If you're a believer, or sorry, if you're not a believer, the application here is simple. It's come to Jesus. There's more room at the banquet. And it's the best and most important decision that you could ever make in your life. It brings more joy, 
more love now in this life and forever. How much more important could that be? And the invitation is open to you. And if you are a believer, enjoy Jesus. Enjoy his banquet. Continue to taste and see that the Lord is good daily. Continue to focus on your heart and focus your heart towards the Lord because he's better than anything you could ever chase. And then I think one final implication of this passage that we just cannot miss as believers is to tell other people that there is room at the banquet. The servant returns in verse 22. He says there's more room. And then the master says in verse 23, go to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So we cannot walk away from this passage and not have a concern for other people as well. Deep in our hearts, right? In these verses, Jesus points us to mercy. He points us back to the sick, to the lost, to the broken. And though he's aimed at the heart, there's a clear message not to forget the poor and those who are sick and in need. And our temptation then again, because our hearts are wicked, is to say, okay, well, I'll just focus on my heart then. And then we can also forget the poor. And then we want everyone to be at this great heavenly banquet with us, right? And so we must tell them, we're the servant that goes out and says, there's still room, come in to the highways and the hedges. Come to the banquet, come to Jesus. And so in closing, if we exalt ourselves, if we ignore the truth about Jesus, if we live for praise and honor and earthly rewards, and we don't value the kingdom, we won't taste the banquet. But if we embrace the truth about Jesus and we come to him in humility, what awaits us is a feast, a banquet better than we could ever imagine. So let me just pray for us and ask that the Lord would really let us believe that in our hearts. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for, God, these teachings um, that you've given to us in your word from your son. God, we ask that um, we would take them to heart, God. God, that we would be a people that is not scared to get into the messiness of our sin and what's deep down inside of us, God, but that we would be changed by your truths and that that would lead us to action, God. That we would be people of mercy, that we would be people of your truth, that we would be people that value the things that you value, and then that we would have an eternal perspective. God, keep our minds focused on the banquet in heaven, God, that we will experience forever with you. And let us do things, God, in this life that will have eternal consequences, God. God, keep us from pride and self-exaltation because we need your help, Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.